we talked about Woody Allen earlier. He's had enough winners where you'll pretty much give anything to I mean, try. Here's the thing. <laughs> They'd have to put Woody Allen in a film and then have him like <laughs> Don't put it past them. Uh, I, 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 I don't know what's wrong with the exhaust. <laughs> Edward Norton playing Sammy yeah. Bagel Jr. Yeah. in the that, next that's one. That's going to be the, the next one. And it would, no one would bat an eye to <laughs> if Sammy Bagel Jr. showed up and Everybody keeps talking about family, but no one's taking a blood test. I don't get it. It's just, he's the interviewer in Vin Diesel. Is no one seeing this? this Vin, Vin, we, focus on me. Focus. Come on, Vin. <laughs> Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss the eighth entry into the Fast and Furious series, which is The Fate of the Furious, starring Vin Diesel and The Rock. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there again, everybody, and welcome back into Film Tank. This is episode 109, and I am your host, Alex Diekman. Along with me today, the usual two guys, Nick Cheney. Hey! Hey. Hey. And Tucson Egan. After this, I'm done. I want my son. What? I want my son, Alex. Oh, you're referring to the film. I was like, yeah. wow, we got... It was just a little lackluster. Yeah, that's okay. Just like that film. Uh, so today we are talking about The Fate of the <laughs> Furious, the eighth film in the Fast and Furious franchise, and it pretty much has Everybody here except for Paul Walker. So, um, if you have no demanding too much money, yeah. <laughs> Damn. Uh, I wow. mean, wow, Nick. Uh, it, we, we we get a lot of cameos. We get a lot of actual screen time for small characters throughout, and uh, we get a very um, feels by the book story at this point from them. So. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but first... We I feel have... like you already did. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Pretty anyway, much. continue. We'll, we'll, we'll just wrap it up right here. I was going to say, I can just get my grade. <laughs> uh, first, we're going to do a little week in review, although it's going to be extended out from just a, a week, because we haven't done one of these in like three or four months. So, um, I guess I'll start, if you guys don't mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk about two films. Uh, the first one being the third uh, film in the Robert Langdon series, which is Inferno. Burn, uh, baby, burn. My wife and I watched this uh, about three weeks ago, and it is not good. Um, I, I've had a little bit of an affinity for the Dan Brown films, even though none of them are great films at all uh but i just have enjoyed the the first two uh specifically angels and demons i think is actually pretty decent uh and then this one showed up and it was a big strikeout um 
I don't have too much in detail to say about it because it really just felt like it was just thrown together and just we've got Ron Howard and Tom Hanks and that's all you need, right? You don't need a script or anything. Well, really. no, it's based on a book. Well, you see, don't need a book. You no, don't need a script. It's just now, there. Now here's the problem, and I will, and I don't believe either of you have read the book. I, oh, this book. This book. Right. Yeah. Read the book. The or good s- book. Or see. <laughs> yes. The Robert Langdon uh, books and films have a lot to do with the good book. Oh, yes, yes they do. True. Yes. So, anyways, um, that being said, I feel like. I got to spoil uh, the ending of the book and the film, if you guys don't mind. Nope. Because they are not the same thing. Okay. Huh. Uh, and, Nick, I told you about this yeah. uh, probably about a year before the film came out. And it came out in October of, of last year, of 2016. And I told you, originally, if the film commits to having the ending that the book has... It, I thought it could be pretty good, and it would be, you know, somewhat impactful. But, of course, Hollywood just ends up... So tell us what the movie's ending is okay. first. So the film's ending uh, is, just to give a little more context, yeah. there's this uh, man-created plague that's been created by... Uh, a man. A man. Always Very a man. good. Always a man. <laughs> Well, yeah, a woman couldn't think of that. Fucking um, misogyny. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Uh, so anyways, uh, the character played by Ben Foster, uh, his name is Bertrand Zobrist, who, I, when I was reading the book, I thought he was like 60, so this was a little weird to see Ben Foster <laughs> cast in this role. Also, it was weird to see uh, Irfan Khan casted in this role in a... It was basically written for Christoph Waltz, and then they ended up with him for some reason, and that mm, was not great. Boy. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, Bertrand Zobrist, uh, Ben Foster's character, creates this plague, and then at the very beginning of the film and the book, he commits suicide. And uh, basically, the reasoning is because he has set the chain of events that will unleash this, this plague. So the film goes along, and it's pretty, you know, standard for the Langdon films. Not a lot, not a lot there at times. And then they try for reveals, and each film has progressively the reels, reveals have gotten less. Like ah, whatever. Like at the end of Angels and Demons, I was like, I knew he was the bad guy all along. You guys suck. You mean Obi Wan? Yeah. So um. We get to the end of the film, and they are uh, in actually a beautiful environment, and it's this, uh, this water, it's not a water treatment, it's like a cistern in Turkey, I believe, or no, it's Istanbul, pardon me, and that is where the, the plague is being housed and is going to be released, and, and the film ends with them stopping the plague, and nothing happens. And that's the end of the film. Yay! Yeah, uh, the book. I don't en- see how you can improve on that. <laughs> yeah, the the book ends with the plague being released. Oh, and uh, yeah. Now <laughs> the so, plague gets released, and then is there a fallout in the book? Well, no. Here, so here's the here's the kicker because the I mean maybe it would 
it would not translate well to audiences because they'd be like, you can't kill people. I mean, all I mean, they can really do at that point if they were to do that in the movie is do like a Donnie Darko Mad World montage as well, Robert Langdon takes his last breath. No, so here's the thing because this this is where it gets a little more hmm. complex because the the whole theme of the film is overpopulation among the earth and uh this Bertrand Zobra's character was a very public figure telling people we need to stop having children because, stop fucking well yeah he's like you know if you just look at the math uh you know we talk about population but uh you know, everyone's estimates are wrong. There's going to be 48 billion people on Earth by 2070, uh, not 12 billion or whatever the thing is. So, uh, so we need to control this. And obviously, people aren't wanting to control who has children, whatever. So, uh, definitely not the U.S. Senate. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the the end of the book revolves around that they arrive at this and find the the bag that is housing the plague and it was already it's a bag yes it's already been released a week earlier well, it so, wasn't a bag what well, they expect well no it's it's like got like a time kidding. release come on <laughs> uh and that's the thing like it made both it was like oh wow this is like actually something's happening now like the world is having to figure out and it's not like killing people it makes uh half of the people on earth sterile randomly oh well that's not so bad well you're not actually physically killing anybody just you know future people so <laughs> uh, it was an interesting thought-provoking thing not that necessarily yeah. was a great ending or anything no, like but that, but movies. it actually made me think a little bit like, oh, I maybe this is something that we should think about and <laughs> not, not not as just like that, but overpopulation is more as getting at too soft, an asshole. And yeah, what's, but, what's but, in your backpack, Alex? Oh, a bag filled with red <laughs> jello goo, which is what the plague looks like in the film. Son of a bitch. Yeah, so uh just to just to clear it up that was not a good film it destroyed the premise pretty much of the of the book i like that the guy kills yeah. himself to like also contribute to the <laughs> overpopulation what you you summing up the the plot for this right now just reminded me of sort of the american equivalent of that which is, is actually a real thing called the georgia guidestones that was actually commissioned by some like rich mysterious like aristocrat who apparently like told people to stop mating and actually etched into stone. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. You see if you tell people to do something, they're going to yeah. they're going to call gonna you the Illuminati. The Don't you fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you do it. So yeah, uh if you have a chance to see Inferno take a pass, it's not good. Uh the other film I wanted to hit on was another uh sequel, believe it or not, because that's, that's all, all we have. Can have. Uh, these days, we're talking about Fate of the Furious on this episode. We'll be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy 2 in a couple weeks, and that's all we can have now. Uh, and that was the second train spotting film, which, mm. oh. although I didn't think it was great, and I didn't think it was as good as the original, I thought it was fine. Did it have a reason to exist? No. Okay. Not really. I mean, uh, 
Because because me and Nick went and saw it together. So yeah, I gotta say I'm not a big fan of Train Spotting, mm-hmm. the first one. Like I don't dislike yeah. it, but it's never really done much for me. Mm-hmm. So me and Alex watched both of them the same day, so I could get my memory refreshed. And I was kind of surprised by the fact that for me at least, maybe that's for someone who's just not a fan of the original. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I didn't mind. Uh, the sequel, like, it's not that it's good, it's, well, it's not that it's that good, and it's not that it's as good as the original, like you're saying, but, um, honestly, I kind of did understand its purpose for existing, or not yeah. did understand it, but yeah. I, I totally saw as far as, like, the inspiration behind it, um, because I genuinely think that the movie Train Spotting's ending, while is kind of a cool, like... Not cliffhanger, but fucked over the right. asshole guy. Um, <laughs> you know it. I I, I don't know. I, like they, they totally come back with a purpose, which is to explain the fallout. Um, and while I think the movie yeah. gets a little too bogged down, <laughs> yeah, by how everybody reacts, I thought the first hour of the second movie was quite good, really good. Yeah, uh, I in fact easily probably one of my favorite scenes of, of the year. Well, my probably favorite scene of the year so far is when Sick Boy is talking with his new girlfriend that he's been hanging out with, and he's got some stupid scheme to get rich and whatever, which gets brought uh, up during the the entirety of the film, actually. But uh, Ewan McGregor comes back and offers to pay him back the money that he stole, and he's like, yeah, like, it's 20 years later, like, you can't give me back those years. But not that he would have, but maybe I would have gone somewhere with that $3,000 and not just continued to be a heroin addict, like you did. <laughs> you went and did something with your life without being a heroin addict, and it's it's interesting. Uh, the, it's both because I really liked the original Train Spotting a lot, but this is, in a age of sequels, this is the anti-cash grab feeling, where it's like, this is 20 years later. Like, it's somewhat interesting to check in on these characters who should all be dead, probably. <laughs> and yet, they're all alive. Uh, some of them are wanting to commit suicide. Some of them are in prison. Uh, some of them uh, have nothing going on with their lives. And some of them uh, just regret everything that they've done, pretty much. And just it's, like real life. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, it's uh, it's an interesting... it. it it probably has a little, a few too many flashbacks into the original film, like actual like used footage. Yes. Okay. But at the same time, uh, you do get some very uh, stabbed in the fucking heart uh, discussion between specifically Renton and Sick Boy uh, when they get talking about the dead baby from the first film, and it's like, oh shit, it's getting real. <laughs> yeah. And those I, are the those are the things though that you looking back on that film and you're like how could somebody move on with their lives after this and you get the answer in this film pretty much so honestly I would like this movie more than the original if Bigby wasn't in it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just as far as like I liked what they were doing with the other three of the core four yeah and or at least did something else with Bigby but mm-hmm. the minute he takes over the movie uh, which is about halfway when he finally finds out that Renton uh, is back yeah. Um, the movie goes off the rails in a way that isn't like awful or anything like that, but I it lost my interest at that point. But um, what I was surprised was that um, who is the fourth person? Uh, what's his name? Not Sick Boy Renton. Or... Ewan Bremmer? Yes. Yeah. With whatever uh, it is. Spud? Spud. Mm-hmm. Um, that 
I never really paid too much attention to him in the original, even though there's certainly a lot of, you know, iconic moments with him. Mm-hmm. But he was easily my favorite character in this installment, and I would have watched, like, I liked this movie to existence just for his arc alone. He was really the only character who you could feel like you actually find out about who they actually are as a person yeah. in both the films, actually, yeah. because even though Renton gives this long story about what his life has been, uh, he gives reason to believe that he shouldn't be believed about what right. his the events are that have transpired in his life. And we never have any sort of clarification on anything really right. about we his get told that between. he's not telling the truth but then we don't actually get told what the truth is right so yeah and i will say um one of my favorite as far as reasons why this sequel exists one of my favorite moments in this movie is when spud rightfully calls out renton for doing the wrong thing even though he thought he was doing the right thing which is leaving him that money because he throws that back to him and said well i left you the money and he goes yeah i was a fucking junkie what did you think i did with it you know so it's almost like and how our choices will actually have negative consequences even when we think we're doing the right thing and i i like that a lot and uh this film uh really takes a bit of an about face from the the original as that it is not going for shock value in a lot of the scenes where the first film definitely is yeah. uh, at points although there is the one scene when uh, Spud is attempting to commit suicide yeah, that was Ren- one of my favorite scenes and Renton tries to pull the bag that's over his head off of it and he throws up into the bag <laughs> all over his face yep. and he's like I'm trying to fucking die and I just yep. got fucking vomit all over me that was <laughs> a much better in my opinion version of the shit scene in the first time <laughs> spotting because honestly I'm of the mind that that scene does not belong in that movie probably not no. I just think it's one of the silliest things considering and it's not the movie it's not that it's not a comedy because obviously train spotting is at times yeah. but that's like when the movie goes over the line of like trying to just be well out- outlandish and it's funny too because talking about uh feces uh, specifically yeah. speaking of feces Talk speaking of feces them. the i feel the exact opposite about the scene when renton goes diving into the toilet after oh yeah uh what does he? What drug does he have? He's got is something. But yeah, the the bad kind. the worst toilet in the town, or yeah, and he's reaching in there, and then you just see him physically dive headfirst and go all the way into. Yeah. I mean, it's that's a great scene. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's and you see him floating around almost like an ocean, and then he finds the drug, and it's just yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah. so yeah, but the uh, the the poop scene flying over that everybody while they're eating felt breakfast like is the Farrelly <laughs> brothers stepped in. <laughs> And directed for a day. Yeah, I I agree. But uh, all that being said, I thought Train Spotting Two was definitely a, a a very watchable film, and I'll probably purchase it so I can have both of them. Yeah. So there you go. All right, who would like to go next? I'll go next. Okay. Okay. So uh, I'm going to talk about some anime bullshit. So if you don't like anime bullshit, you can just I'll tune step out. out. That's yeah. cool. Yep. That's Anyone right. want a beer? All right. Sounds I good. Actually, do. Well, I like anime. So okay, I'll go get the. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right, cool. Yep, I'm going to talk. Do you want a beer or not? Um, no, I got one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll okay. have anything. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what anime bullshit did you watch, Tisa? Okay, so on a whim, I decided to buy the Blu-ray slash DVD collection of Royal Space Force Wings of Honmise. 
Okay. I think I talked about that on a previous episode very, very inferentially with um, when Brian was actually on our on one of our episodes. Yeah. Right? And I got to say, I am absolutely surprised about the quality of that edition. It's mm. like... This is a TV series or a movie? This is a movie. Okay. This is actually like the the first theatrical debut of a studio called Gainax, who is known for series like uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, oh, yeah. uh, Evangelion and uh, Tengo Topo uh, Gurren Lagann. Um, it's incredible. The yeah. the edition itself, like I, I I already like the film. I already love the film, but it's such a great conversion to Blu-rays. Like it it it. I've never seen the film look this good. And on top of that, it comes with this this booklet. Not this little leaflet, but an actual like dense booklet, like criterion level, yeah. where it has essays and interviews and concept art. It is just a, a above and beyond uh, conversion and a, and a collection for this, this film that I was not expecting. I wish more classic anime films actually got this treatment. Can I say something to yeah. you and to the audience, but yeah. mostly to you, but also I think somebody might be interested? Yeah. Um, Arrow Video, um, which is a wonderful distribution, home distribution video yeah. um, company. You who, talked to me about them before. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're doing a lot of good stuff. They, they were based in the UK, and they finally started their own uh, USA line. Right. And while um, I wouldn't say that the quality of the USA films are lesser, it's just that they get – Writes to more famous films in the UK because mm-hmm. we already released them on other labels and such. Right. But they're starting a new venture where they are now doing a new line in which they're also going to do, and this goes to USA or UK, where they are doing a line of books and they will be hardbound and they will be the same exact size as like their Blu ray releases so oh. that they fit on the shelf. Yeah. One of the three of their first uh, three titles is a book exclusively <laughs> devoted to Ghosts in the Shell. <gasps> So I thought you might want to know that. Yes. But also for anybody else, there's a book on that. There's a the, one of the three titles is that um, the Blair Witch Project. Okay. The the first one, of course, <laughs> and um, a book dedicated to Miko Kaiji from okay. uh, Lady Snowboard. Yes. Yeah. Uh, female Prisoner Scorpion. So anyway, I thought you might want to know that. Yes. Thank you so much. Anyway. I love that. Um, so I watched that and that was really good. And the one other thing that I'm going to mention is something that Nick actually turned me on to and let me borrow mm. the Blu-ray for. Is this uh, this twelve episode anime series called Death Parade by um, this 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 up and coming like animator who has done like some notable stuff on some other series, but it is incredible for yeah. what it what it is able to achieve and what it does um, through the medium outside of the medium within just twelve episodes is just remarkable. I would actually recommend that to somebody who does not give a shit about anime. Yeah, I was going to say. Yes. It, it's, it's... <laughs> yes, yes, Alex. I was I was pointing to you all the way at the back of the auditorium like drinking that beer. Thank you. It's yep. got all the certain, shall we say, trappings of anime mm-hmm. when it comes to a few tropes and such, but it's got such a wonderful Twilight Zone premise that it transcends the normal either mecha slice of life mm-hmm. or a few other common anime genres. For the the benefit of the listener and for Alex, would you mind like giving an elevator speech <laughs> of what uh, Death Parade is about? It's very simple. It's Twelve episodes. Each episode, two people find themselves uh, and they're completely unconscious until they come to find themselves in an elevator. I want ele- to play a game. 
I know. Much. It's, it's invocative so of that, but it's exactly. so much smarter than that. And yeah. what <laughs> happens is they walk out of the elevator. They find themselves in a bar that's run by a bartender named uh, Deckham. Deckham. And um, Deckham presents that they have to play a game. And the whole thing is that what they don't know, because they're not allowed to have this knowledge until after they play the game, but the audience does, is that the game itself decides their fate because Deckham is not merely a bartender, but he's actually an arbiter of souls. And what he does is he judges them as people. So the episodes kind of balance between actual flashbacks into their human lives and also, of course, um, how they're playing the game that's in front of them yeah. because it it's used to try to prod and get at the worst of human existence. Does, um, no, the, the bar, what, the, is a bartender? Yeah. yeah. He has a name or not? Yes. His name so is name Deckham. 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 Yeah. Yes. Uh, at any point, just cause I'm, I'm somewhat yeah. intrigued now, uh, at any point does he play some sort of a game? Um, he does not. Okay. But what you're referring to is something that, let's just say I don't want to spoil anything, yeah. but while he doesn't, the itch you're referring to does get scratched okay. by yeah. the end of the series. Okay. Because there are other characters besides him. Mm-hmm. Like, there, are, there are larger implications yes. to this game and, and what Deckham is going on. And himself is technically being tested for yeah. something, mm-hmm. but not necessarily for the same thing. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, um, it's pretty great because it's melodramatic, but it's also extremely poignant it's um it just goes anywhere and everywhere yeah and i was actually and are, I, and yeah. are you, these are 12 uh, are they hour long episodes? half hour i'm mean, the 20 hour? minute episodes oh okay you can yeah. literally finish the whole thing in five hours okay like, it's, it's one of the only yeah it's one of the only anime shows like tucson said that i would recommend to anybody to at least try because mm. it's something different yeah hmm. very good yeah thank you nick you always find the deep cuts i try yeah but uh <laughs> yeah that was my uh my weekend review okay right on yeah well, um, moving to me, I'm going to kind of push it back to Tassant because I want to know what he thinks because I showed him one of my favorite movies, um, which is called Four Lions. And for anybody who hasn't seen Four Lions, it is um, written and directed, I think directed, but definitely written uh, by British satirist uh, Chris Morris, who's one of the most prolific voices in media comedy in the UK because prolific, he, provocative. I was um, gonna say there is nothing he won't touch, and usually he's touching people in places they don't want to be touched. Um, emotionally, yes. Um, just to give a little context before he's not I, Bill Cosby, no, well, no. <laughs> um, but um, he got famous because he created the show The Day Today, uh, which was a very short run, like all British shows are, but six episodes. Um, fake news show where it was oh, like, okay. you know, s- kind of satirical, but also just absurd in general. That's also where Alan Partridge was created. Oh, okay. Alan Partridge did the sports or the weather, one of the two, I forget. Okay. So he was just a side character. And then Steve Coogan and Armando Iannucci, another satirist, took Alan Partridge away from the show and did their own thing. But Chris Morris created, created him. Then he did Brass Eye, which was a more focused version of uh, the day-to-day where he did a kind of spoof on, um, what do you call it, long-form media journalism like Dateline Mm. or 2020 where you do like one issue per an episode of news. And all hell broke loose when he did his special of that show. After the first six episodes, he did one one special Was called... Was it a Christmas special? It wasn't a Chris... I don't think so. I, I don't think it would have been aired on Christmas. <laughs> it was... Um, it's called uh, P. Geddon because 
It is completely lampooning at the time the UK's media's reaction to the rampant tabloidization and sens- uh, sensational. sensational reaction to pedophilia. Oh. And it is just 30 minutes of him trying to get everybody who's watching it pissed off at what he can get away with. Um, and he did a good job. Yes, and it's hilarious. I th- it's one of the greatest pieces of, I mean, it's 20, 30 minutes, whatever. It's one of the greatest episodes of television ever because it's just so well done. So it's it's hilarious, but at the same time, you're laughing, but you're like, oh. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> because um, he, like, just to give an example of, like, what happens in it, like, there are segments with, reform pedophiles who he goes into like telling what he would have done in this situation to further inform the public what to look for you know like it's that over um eager to shine a spotlight on something that probably doesn't need a spotlight you know and he's doing it because of the fact that that was actually what they were doing right like it it, obviously he took it to a different 11 so to speak (laughs) yeah um, but for, then you then you see like did he really turn the notch that high up compared yeah. to like what was actually going on? It's like no, exactly. you just put like a half notch yeah. higher than you should have. He just made it funnier, basically. Yeah. Um, like there's one scene, and I'll talk about the movie, but there's one scene in which he's going, he's at like an art gallery with somebody who's curating this art gallery, and um, he brings in I think a psychologist or something who. who uh, specialize in pedophilia or whatever, um, which they call pedophilia, so that's why it's Pigeon. It's supposed to be like Armageddon. Oh, okay. So, um, Michael Bay also directed this. That's right. And so he's in the gallery, and so he's like, okay, so what we have are works of art all around the wall. He's like, I want you to work with me here. Tell me if this crosses a line. So there are pictures of naked women, not children, obviously, uh, all around, you know, because it's art, whatever. So then he starts taking pictures of children and, like, ripping off their heads and putting them on the women's body. And he's like, now, this, is this, is this in any way uh, crossing any lines? And then the guy's like, well, no, because that's still a woman's body. He's like, okay, good. So we're allowed to do this. (laughs) And he just keeps going. So if that at all sounds funny, the full episode is on YouTube. I suggest anybody watch it. Wow. So he kind of disappeared after that because. I wonder why. He got a lot of shit, even though they... Did he, it, did he get blackballed? I would say not so much blackballed, but, like, he certainly had to come up with his own means of, like, uh, distribution kind of thing. Like, people still could see an audience for Chris Morris, but yeah. after something like that, he I think some people thought he went off the deep end, even uh, though I thought it was hilarious, and a lot of people did. Simon Pegg is in P. Geddon <laughs> as a two-minute cameo where he plays a... Uh, a reformed pedophile, I think. Anyway, so his, he... His greatest role. Yeah. So about a decade later, he came up with this movie called Four Lions, which is in a completely straight face. I mean, it's absurd, it's farcical, mm-hmm. but it is deadly <laughs> serious. Yeah. Um, of a depiction of four British Muslims who want to be jihadi terrorists. And... For me, at least, it is one of the funniest films I've ever seen. Mm. I'm a big fan of... Uh, Terrorism. Ch- well, that, and uh, <laughs> just awful black humor um, where you're uncomfortable because you shouldn't yeah, be laughing at what's probably a real... Yeah, but- I like the Wayne's Brothers. Yeah. Uh, black humor. I get it. Shades of Black. 
<laughs> but um, what I honestly think, besides the fact that it's absurd and it's farcical and all that, I genuinely think that there's a purpose for these kinds of uh, media. I think what he's, Chris Morris has said in an interview, I totally agree with, which is that he kind of set out, he goes, when we hear story, and once again, I think he's fascinated with people's reactions to things, yeah. rather, and that's obviously the hallmark of a provocateur, mm-hmm. but I think here he's astute with his observations because he says that we tend to think of terrorists as one archetype, which is that steely gaze, cold-hearted, you know, um, Machiavellian, manipulative, just like upper detached. tier. We we sort we we inadvertently romanticize their ability to yeah. go to great lengths in des- in destroying the right. lives of regular people. That kind of purification of an ideology. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's yeah, it's really gross. So here he writes four characters who are the dumbest people on the face of the earth. Trying to be terrorists who and what was the name of the one of them? Um, Barry. Yeah, Barry. Well, uh, Describe Barry. So Barry is wonderful because tell him about Barry. <laughs> tell him about Barry. So out of the four, Barry is the only. Um, what would you say? Caucasian. Yes, Caucasian in the group because he is an actual just convert. Okay. And what I loved is one. I don't remember what piece it was out on the internet, but mm-hmm. one review of the film describes Barry as George W. Bush's worst nightmare. <laughs> And it's so true. Like he is, it is so great. So every line telling he people says, to be scared of white people, and here's this white person. right. Like that no, somehow tell people to be scared of Muslims, scared and, of and, here's the, and here's this white person. <laughs> well, no, but I think that's yeah, that's the right? whole thing. The war yeah. on terror because they're coming after us too, and uh, yeah. there's that you know fear which is so idiotic. Yeah. Um, but this movie is uh, so, if you want to call it unPC, whatever. But it is just first and foremost hilarious i mean these are people who fight over the right way to shoot a jihadist terrorist video um because at one point the gun is too small so he's like well i'll, I'll just move it closer to the camera it's a, it's a plastic ak <laughs> so little things like that like if if, if the ridiculous minutiae of what it would like to be a terrorist if you were an idiot mm-hmm. makes you laugh then i think this movie is certainly uh, yeah. for you what i also love about it is by the last 10 to 15 minutes I wouldn't say it tests your sympathies, oh, yeah. but I think it would be surprising uh, for someone to watch it from start to finish and not start to contemplate the humans behind these heinous in, acts. In the way that you don't have to be a, a hero in order to be a protagonist. You don't need to be a villain in order to be an antagonist. Um I think that there's at least one person in this movie out of the four that I would say an actual victim. Yeah, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, 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 yes. I, I think I do. Okay. Um, yeah, this this film has got to be one of the most deeply uncomfortable and also hilarious films I've seen in recent memory. I remember like watching this and like literally exclaiming, "This pisses me off so much right now!" And Nick asked me, "Is like in in a good way?" I'm just like, <laughs> "Yeah, in a good way." So, but almost on a bad way too. Is he a film slash television creator uh, that would be a modern modern ish example of? A comedic Alfred Hitchcock, almost, because 
He's a, he's 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 an example of provocateurism. So. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it seems I'm trying like to think of a good analogy. Okay, because like, it's not like it's not, that it's, wouldn't be no. Because Alfred Hitchcock was more provocative solely in psychosexual ways. Well, that's mm. what I'm saying. In the, in the, the I see what you mean. Sense. But a first of all, I think it's important to notice that or to note that he's not a film director. Um, yeah, he directed yeah. the movie, but yeah. he's a he's clearly a television person, and that's why some people might not be able to. Go with every minute of this movie because it does have that television pacing. It's just okay. a scene after a scene, but I think they're hilarious scenes. Mm. Um, but he's more like, um, why am I trying to? Well, I'll Lars probably, Van Trier. Actually, kind of as yeah. far as like okay. the comedy equivalent okay. of like not to be like what Lars Von Trier aims to do with depression and drama. He uh, Chris Morris aims to do with absurdist lens on real topics, so mm-hmm. to speak. I think that's a pretty good... Okay. He's more of a provocateur like that. Okay. He wants you to not like it because <laughs> then you're already... Yeah. Uh, you've already made up your mind, so to speak. Right. Now, obviously, someone could watch this and rightfully not like the movie. I mean, but I, I think there's something to be said about him trying to bash the people that are across the aisle. Barry hmm. is like if Walter Subcheck and Cartman combine into one person who then try to yep. hook up with the jihad. Yeah, just to give like an example, let's say, of the idiotic ideology uh, behind what these four characters are doing. So at one point, they're trying to figure out between the four of them what their big terrorist act is going to be. (laughs) Just the fact that they have to debate that is really sad. But um, so Barry, of course, has the great idea that he wants to bomb a mosque. (laughs) And so they rightfully point out that that doesn't really make sense because (laughs) those are, you know, their people. But he goes, well, no, I mean, you know, you bomb the mosque, but you do it anonymously. That way all the Muslims rise up and then we fight even, you know, bigger. And then they're like, okay, Barry, that's – Okay, step. So then he's like, "All right, so w- that's like if we were having a fight, and then if I start punching you and you can't take it, then you just punch yourself." And so he's like, "Barry, why don't we try that out?" And it's like, "What? No, no, that's not the same thing at all." And let's just say the the scene ends with a bloody nose, and it's it's just absurd and hilarious. Not that it would be, but yeah. when you were saying that of of the idea of bombing their their own people, because uh, I just watched the film and it reminded me a little bit of V for Vendetta, mm-hmm. where they blow up on it no 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 where uh they uh the government comes into this you know kind of position of power well no they come into this weapon that they have that creates this disease and instead of giving it to north korea or the united states they give it to their own people so they can control them easier no i mean everything is like that where it's like whatever sounds good if you say it but then don't think about it, mm-hmm. that's the kind of ideology that these mm. people, at least in the film, uh, practice. And just the way that any uh, splinter or f- uh, fractioning off of of any that ideology, ideology yeah. will then start to corrupt it and dilute it to where you'll end up at a completely different place. Because, uh, yeah, if you just follow the trajectory of the main character, by the way, is Riz Ahmed. Um, from, oh okay, yeah, yeah, um, sure. He's hilarious because he's huh. actually the straight man. The other okay. three are really dumb. He's like he's not very dumb, but he's certainly the only one who at least can keep a he's thought. Also trying to save Mads Mikkelsen in this. That's right. Oh, and there is a uh, cameo appearance before he was famous. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch yeah. oh. plays a cop or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, plays Sherlock. 
Pretty much. I think he was just like about... Like a shittier to, Sherlock, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. You're, you're an ass man. <laughs> you're, you're an ass man, right? Yeah. So, anyway. Good. Um, I think it's hilarious. I think anybody who laughs at horrible things would like it. Okay. And anybody who doesn't, but maybe laughs at just good satire, uh, would also like it. It's just... Uh, I can't imagine that, at the very least, if you watch the whole thing, you won't crack up really hard at at least one line and that alone just makes it worth a watch. Yeah. Cuz there is on the virtue of, on, of... on the virtue of that one line I I would elect that sometime in the future we should do an episode okay. on this. And uh mm-hmm. maybe you did mention this and I just totally whiffed on it but this is pretty recent too. This yeah, is 2000, 2010. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's within the last... Uh, so, yeah, he had taken a long break yeah. uh, from the public eye, and he hasn't done anything since either, mm-hmm. other than a few cameos and random projects. So, anyway, um, that was a very elongated, but uh, I not, was... Not to belabor the point, no, no, no. but just on one final <clears throat> note, that if I was to describe four lines, it would probably be a... It is a pitch-dark act of catharsis, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, so... Very good. The only other thing I'll mention is, let's see here. Whoa, man, I watched a lot of shit. Yeah, that's about right. Have you hit? Uh, have you hit a hundred yet this year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm like up to 140 or something. Really? <laughs> oh my yeah. god! Like it's nothing. Come on. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Um, let's talk about. Let's talk about. Mm. Oh, I know. I finally watched Patterson. Mm. The movie that I was dying to see all last year, but never really came around here. Another Adam Driver film. Yep, Adam Driver, but more importantly, Jim Jarmusch, who's amazing. Yeah, his last film wasn't that good. Alex, I'm talking now. (laughs) Um, Patterson is exactly what it is when you watch the trailer. I mean, it's, it's in no way misleading. It is a very poetic, lyrical take on one man's uh, very mundane life. Um, it's got a, more of a structure than his last film um, okay. because it literally it goes through a week in the life. Um, the title cards come up on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah. And you see just how little and yet how big his day varies. He's got the same routine, and yet he also comes across different experiences. Was that? Anton Yelchin in Only Lovers Left Alive. Yes, okay. As the uh, the guitar dude. Yeah, yep. I'm, I was I was trying to remember the because uh, I remember Mia was a Kauska, yep. but I couldn't remember. Oh. Yeah, it didn't end well for him in the movie. Oh, I was gonna say he also is dead in real life. Well, so that's true. Yeah. Too. So getting back to Patterson, though. <laughs> but Patterson, I th- I thought was lovely. If you like Jim Jarmusch, if you like. Certainly more meditative movies. Um, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, is Adam Driver's character, just because I've been curious if yeah. you're seeing, is he battling like some weird depression? No. It? No? Okay. That's what's Good. kind of refreshing about the movie in general. It's one of the most lighthearted movies mm. I've ever seen. Okay. Um, he's like, in fact, there's even a reference to the fact that he is a war veteran. And so at one point, if you dig really deep, you can maybe see like repressed PTSD, but not in a way where you would like teach this movie in a PTSD course. Like it is nothing about any of that is overt Good. or anything. It is more of just about a man who loves poetry and 
will never stop writing it and what the words mean to him. One of my favorite devices in the movie is that we hear his poems that he writes every day and usually on his lunch break. And what's great is that we'll hear the same poem more than once because the second day he'll kind of correct it and he'll, it'll be the same poem, but he thought of new turn of phrases and such. So we truly do actually get a nice little window into the psyche of the creative mind and the creative process. Um, And I love that part. His relationship with his girlfriend, I believe, I don't think it's ever explicitly stated that they're married, but life partner, um, is pretty beautiful because she has these passions and they kind of change from day to day. And yet the movie is never condescending towards her. Cause when it first started, I thought it could go one of two ways and it could be like one of those, like, Oh, well, didn't you say you were into this yesterday? Like, you know, whatever. But what's kind of lovely about their relationship and Patterson, the character himself is that he's just completely supportive of whatever she's into day by day. And there it's, yeah, it's, it's certainly not for everybody because there's no conflict. There's no, um, n- like, narrative momentum of trying to figure out what happens next. But if you can appreciate the subtle variations on a routine in in one man's life, then you can kind of really dig into it. Like, for example, one, just a way not to watch the movie, but every day when Patterson gets home, he walks past his mailbox, and his mailbox has always c- c- slightly come off of his post to the r- and is leaning over. And how he reacts to the fact that it's leaning over each day tells something about his temperament and mood that day. Hmm. So it's, it's one of those things where it is a character study first and foremost, but you only get what you put into it, you know. And I can totally understand it. Anybody watched it and didn't like it, but for someone like me who's really into this kind of movie, it absolutely lived up to my expectations. Is uh, is Adam Driver on a possible trajectory to be the next like it person like Benedict Cumberbatch was for a few years? Yeah, I think he's certainly kind of approaching, I don't know if I want to say like, that's a bad comparison, I won't say that, but I definitely think he is just slowly climbing up. Uh, I, I'm... Kind of enthralled by him. Because he keeps just showing up in things and keeps ending up being, other than Silence, I didn't really care for him in that. The uh, driver renaissance. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's yeah. uh, other than the obvious, which is Star Wars, he's he's made his way into a lot of things and done pretty good work. Yeah. So What I really like about Adam Driver and his career is that... Um, I like the fact that where he became famous, he seems to be fiercely loyal to because I like the fact that it never... I mean, this is a guy who works now for Star Wars and Disney. I mean, that's pretty much... You can not make another movie for the next, you know, five, ten years and be golden. Yeah. And yet, it never felt like he was absent from girls, especially in his final season where he came into play toward the later uh, half of that season. And uh, by the way, someone... I love television... Girls ended its run and it ended it wonderfully. Just okay. putting that out there. No, no, it was it was a the a good final season, a good final episode. Great final season. Okay. Final episode I also thought was great, but it also did something um most TV series are not willing to do, which I loved, um, which is to have an epilogue episode, like where you end your season an episode before the final episode. And then the final episode is more about what happens next. That's good. That's not a real, a true plot-driven show, though. No, but I'm just surprised because just, uh, I'm going to spoil it, but uh, essentially the final season was 
interestingly enough, all about Hannah's um, pregnancy. She got okay. pregnant by Riz Ahmed <laughs> um, in a guest star role. And was, you know, this is a show that started with an abortion. The second episode, they threw an abortion party. So it is a pro-choice show. Mm-hmm. So what's actually kind of great, and what one boneheaded writer wrote was that um, some, I forgot what publication it was for, but some asshole, I think it was a dude, because of course it was, <laughs> wrote the headline, don't tell Lena Dunham, but she accidentally wrote a pro-life season. And then everybody, of course, tore that apart and said, no, because oh. the whole point of pro-choice is that... You get to choose. Yeah. And then the greatest thing is in his subheading, <laughs> he wrote, as we see in the season six, Hannah chooses to have her child. So, uh, so yeah, he, to unpack it. He literally... dumbass. He literally doesn't even know. Anyway, I, I just had to yeah. piss on that. So anyway... I mean, it's... It's it's low hanging fruit there for you to piss on that, oh, yeah. buddy. <laughs> but I just I thought it was great. Uh, <laughs> but no, Hannah is gets pregnant and she decides that she does want to have the child, which is crazy as far as that's in my opinion how well written that show is. Because if this was first yeah. season, Hannah, that would be child abuse. <laughs> but this is six seasons later, and they've developed these characters wonderfully enough where you completely understand that decision and how that could be beneficial. So the season itself ends in the penultimate episode, and in the final episode, it's a time jump. Okay. And it's a bottle episode, basically, where you're just with her, her best friend Marnie, played by Allison Williams, and her mother uh, visits her at one point while, okay. she, while she's already had this baby. Mm-hmm. And it's just about what Hannah looks like as a mother. And, like, there's no real, like grand finale and i thought that was great yeah is is um for someone as as you know who uh it's not just lena dunham it's kind of the way the show presented itself it just i never could get into it see that um did it ever kind of evolve away from that a little bit or was it pretty much the same thing all the way through because well, are you I talking really, about the characters or the plotting I'm, I'm talking about the dialogue the characters all that no those are who these people are that's, that's what i'm i will say yeah. it's a wonderful textbook example of how to develop them like they do not stay the same person mm-hmm. they have the same mannerisms for sure but these characters, yeah. Hannah especially, grow up. I mean, this is not, like I said earlier, you know, the Hannah of season one is ten times more immature than the Hannah of season six and so on and so forth. Yeah. One thing I will say for anybody who doesn't like the show, I at least recommend you watch some of the more um, novella-esque episodes in which uh, it's just a short story. For example, they usually do one a season where you just follow a character in one experience and this season might have been the final season uh that bottle episode might have been their best one yet which involves hannah um finding herself drawn to uh what is it go visit a fellow author a much more famous author um a male author Mm -hmm. who apparently has called her to come see him and he's very rich and he's played by Matthew Reese who is now on the Americans right now um, and the whole thing is that uh, he's called her to his apartment because Hannah wrote a blog post um, on her personal blog she's also a professional writer mm-hmm. but she wrote a blog post about somebody else <laughs> writing a blog post who apparently slept with him and she believes that the, the original writer female whatever believes it was non-consensual sex 
Oh, okay. It kind of like mirrors the whole Bill Cosby and the way oh, okay. males have this entitlement. So he calls Hannah here hmm. because he wants to ask her why someone who's not involved with this situation whatsoever has any right to write about it. And what's pretty brilliant about the episode, considering this is obviously Lena Dunham's show, so of course you can see why this issue, I think, would be close to her heart, especially sure. the feminists and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but she, I would say, for the majority of the running time, she gives credence to both sides. Like, he's extremely articulate, and he is right about a lot of things when he says things like, so are you a journalist or are you a writer? Because this seems like tabloid, you know. And she, of course, comes back with things like, so you can't tell me that, you know, this was um, consensual if you know that people in your orbit are under your spell, whatever. You know, but that's the, I mean, that's the the truth, especially yeah. uh, as time has worn on. Like, there is a lot of gray area in Agreed. writing. And, and that is just exposed on a daily basis, pretty yes. much. And what I love about what Lena Dunham does with the episode is in mm. the final two to three minutes, she takes the gray out of the situation. I won't tell you in which way, mm. but it ends with a definitive statement on whether people like Hannah are right to shine a spotlight on these kind of situations, even if you don't have all the facts. Mm. At the end of the day, men are assholes. Mm. And so um, I won't say exactly how okay. it ends, but I think so, it's a brilliant episode that you could watch if you've never even seen an episode of Girls. Really quickly, yeah. before we, we kind of get bring into, it into this, yeah. get into the, the Vin Diesel interview. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. Is anyone seeing this? You we got to talk about that. You seeing this? I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, what What do you personally think the the future is for Lena Dunham? Because this has been her, mostly been this is her calling card. It's right. been the show, and now it's over. Well, I'm, I'm glad that this is happening on the Fate of the Furious episode. <laughs> I'm just I'm more interested in this than I am in that. <laughs> I know. Um, well, I mean, explicitly, we know at least what the near future is, which is she does have another show lined up. Yeah. But it's going to be drastically different. It's a period piece. It's not a, uh, I think it's a drama, like an hour-long drama, I think. Um, so certainly she's trying to flex more muscles. I think she'll always, I think she'll be, I think she's <laughs> literally probably for better and for worse. I think she's this generation's Woody Allen. I think she has this distinctive authorship on all of her media that I think is essential, that can rub some people the wrong way. But ultimately, she is at least exposing um, real issues, real people. And I, I realize that, like Woody Allen, she has a very limited uh, purview because, yes, you can criticize her for... The way, a number of things. Well, for a number of things, yeah. but even specifically for the fact that, yes, uh, uh, everybody on Girls is white or every whatever. Yeah. I think that as a criticism in and of itself is missing the point of Lena D Dunham being somewhat responsible because she already pisses people off. So don't you think that she would piss more people off if she wrote <laughs> characters that were not of her same race like i don't know i just i, I don't think she's in a can-win situation i there. i personally and it's it's good that you bring up woody allen like i personally would like her to do more films to be honest with you yeah and not that because she, she hasn't really done much involving film yet she did her one and that's what got judd apatow to notice her yeah, yeah. 
But at the same time, I feel like speaking of Woody Allen, there's there's a you know sixty percent of Woody Allen that you can just put over in the corner and not be part of your diet, yeah. and then there's you know forty percent of it which is like either tolerable or great. Yeah. And I feel like that's a little bit of her problem as a somewhat polarizing figure yeah. is that for me at least. I'd seen enough episodes of Girls where I couldn't take the stink off of wanting to even give it another chance after the fifth episode I'd watched. Where if she makes a really good film that I'm into, I would watch that over and over again. So, eh, I don't know. I will say I think I prefer her as a television writer because I think she's really good at short stories, which is what Girls essentially was. Like, even though she certainly developed characters over time and it was serialized, essentially those were written from the point of view of basically a young author writing short stories, like the moments that define one's life as they grew up, with very little connective tissue in between them as to why we were listening to this story directly after this or before that one. So I think she does better in a more concentrated format. And, And that's also, I do think, even some of Girls' biggest detractors who hate that show, I think a lot of them do like the uh, what we call the um, bottle episodes that she writes at least once a season because the more focused she is and the more concentrated the time spent on a particular issue or whatever um, and the less spread out she is uh, across an ensemble um, the better her her point of view comes across i think it's i'm i'm i don't know why this this film is 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 thought come up to my mind a few times we've been talking about her but i'm gonna bring it up and i know it's a film you love and that's the film tape yeah Uh, and i feel like uh, a film like that a single setting film with limited characters that gets deep in on characters i mean i feel like she could make some great uh, hour and forty minute films. I was going to say if she does those kind of things, and that's essentially what her what those episodes I'm talking yeah, about are sure. exactly yeah, like that. Exactly, single locations yeah. usually, or at the very least, single journeys like where mm-hmm. we're not um, like you can watch them independently of the entire show. And tape is a great example. Um, honestly, what I would love there are so many voices out there. This is a really random tangent before we get to the yeah, fate sure. of the fairies. Go for it. But what I would love to see on television that Louis C.K. has kind of tried to, uh, I don't know, put breathe life back into is the return of the anthology live drama format. Um, his Horace and Pete miniseries, which was phenomenal, echoed back to, even though it was serialized and there were... I love, I know, I'm just going to say, I love Suey, Louis C.K. Yeah. Uh, just the... I mean, he finds a way always to just, like, he'll be out of the media for a while, and then he'll sneak in in some way that you weren't quite expecting. Yeah. And I, I just love the him going back and talking about his apology and then doubling down pretty much <laughs> on what he said. I mean, it was yeah. in a different way, but at the same time, it's it's like that's exactly who Louis C.K. is, at least to me, is someone who hasn't spent a lot of time watching his his specials and his, um, you know, television. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I think he's a absolutely fantastic. I think he's hilarious. Person. Yeah, and he's also definitely one of the comedians who does not budge on his own line, which I think is for better and for worse. Yeah. Um, but with Horace and Pete, he did the whole um, live theater esque filming where he kind of set it up like a multi cam sitcom where it's just people on a stage, and he carried it on throughout a ten episode arc, which was fantastic. But 
the to harken back to the 50s and 60s when television was doing um once a week actual live dramas I and mean, that's where we got um 12 angry men i mean that's what that started because it was a um even though it's a famous movie now it was adapted from one of the Westinghouse or Playhouse or what Studio Studio Sixty was the program because there were many different programs that used to do this week to week. Uh, it was a Studio Sixty drama first that was live and produced in front of uh, millions of Americans uh, who were watching television. And I think people, I still think that there is money to be made because we're already kind of inching towards it with the whole live musical. But that's because we're living in an age of uh, you know spectacle first. I still think if somebody was smart, they would put their money down to put forth one of these, maybe do like a 10-part series a year where you commission 10 authors. You get a Lena Dunham script. You get a Louis C.K. script. And that alone would get, I would think at least, respected actors to visit too because you only have to commit to one episode and one performance uh, total. Um, I just think that we are so close to returning to that and yet we're going to miss the boat on that which is too bad because that produced some of the best uh, writing and television uh, really just any film media ever presented. Yeah. So anyway. It's funny you bring that up. Uh, well not funny you bring that up. Like I, That's completely different from what I'm talking about but uh, this is a, a film that my wife and I watched probably about two years ago now. It's from 2006. It's called Paris Je... Je te yeah. Yeah. And that's such a very interesting uh, Never process. actually seen that. It's, it's not necessarily... I know it's like a short story yeah. directed by different... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not necessarily great, but at the same time, it takes so many twists and turns while having the one very simple through line of all being said in Paris. Yeah. Uh, it is just such a bizarre, like you could start with a comedy, go to a drama, go to a horror, and there are all these, you know, five to eight minute snippets that, that go throughout. And there's major directors that got involved in it. And it's, it's pretty interesting. Like the Coen brothers did one, Wes Craven did one, Alfonso Caron did one. Like it's, it's a very interesting collection and, I'd love to see something more like that uh, on a like a like a mainstream scale. Even we, it would be so so fresh. I feel like yeah, I don't know. we don't. We're getting farther and further away from that. Where now the closest thing we have to that yeah. is in the horror genre. Yeah, you know, you have like the VHS anthologies where you can have like a Joe Swanberg uh, section and uh, uh, what's his name who just did the new Blair Witch, Adam Weingard. You know, mm-hmm. so like it seems like that kind of thing is only now relegated to the horror genre for some reason. But uh, yeah, just I guess long story short, just uh, hire people. That are good. Yeah, hire people that are hire good, and, that are good and maybe try to do something that's a little fresh and not just uh not just the same package over yeah. again. Look, here's the soundtrack for Guardians of the Galaxy Two. It's just the same soundtrack as the first film. You know my favorite the next... song of that soundtrack. <laughs> it's funny because Toussaint made a stance on not knowing any of the songs from the soundtrack, which there's two weeks left before, so he's got no shot at this of, of making it all the way through. <laughs> what a dick. Tell me why. But it it is interesting that it seems like Don't don't fuck with me like that. Every single Tell me why. Every single aspect of every franchise is just recycled and it's just ugh. Yeah, that's not entirely know. true in the case of 
Look, I know that Guardians of the Galaxy and their whole shtick has been recycled not only in its own franchise, but also by Suicide Squad well, and pretty much every other parallel. That was not recycled. That every was other... an attempt at recycling and failing. Exactly, <laughs> but it, it it tried to... It, it tried it's like to... when you have a guest over and they say, do you recycle? And then you point to the uh, recycle bin and there's, for some reason they put all the cans in the trash. <laughs> or they can't even find it. Is, it. is this the garbage? No, that's not. Okay. That's the fork And then drawer. you go to the bathroom late okay. at night and you find Coke cans in the bathroom's <laughs> garbage. And you're like, what the fuck, Aunt Dorothy? I told you where the goddamn trash can was. Okay, so... Reeling this back to Guardians of the Galaxy so we can finally... What are we finally... talking about? Yeah. I love this episode. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck we're talking about anymore. Um, I think that how Guardians of the Galaxy employed licensed music compared to every other Marvel film leading up to that was novel. I feel like the fact that they actually made the soundtrack like an actual artifact within the actual yeah. film, I thought that was novel. That was interesting. Even even yeah. if it was really on the nose and it was really trying to like hit for like one certain demographic, which is basically my dad who came up like listening to that kind of shit. Yeah. And I like the music too. Um I, 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 I liked that it, it there was something notable about that. The soundtrack. If only one thing apart from all the other like formulaic Marvel films. What I'll say about the soundtrack and the first Guardians is that it's kind of brilliant in and of itself because of the way that James Gunn chose songs that we've all heard but we don't know the name of. So that in and of itself ties into the familiarity of the Guardians before we've even met them. It's just like, we may not know who these characters are, but we're going to give them a chance because we've heard this story before, and we've you know seen these kind of characters before. So I, I like the way it kind well, of... Well, it also had Star-Lord kicking little aliens with well, his yeah. feet. At the but like, who knew that that was, you know, come and get your love by Redbone yeah. or whatever. No, for real. So, you know, but we've all heard it. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, that's... that's but that's the problem. Probably haven't heard in a while. But that's the problem, though, with the second yeah, film. Yeah, I will bit. say there's like half of it. I was like, oh, okay, but yeah. some of the other, I was like, really? Yeah, that's it's like it's noble. like, boy, we've we've got this formula now, so we're just gonna follow this again, like word for word from the first film, and yeah. it's just like, ah. we'll see what happens. It's funny, and we don't need to talk about it in detail, but it's funny we we talk about that. And we, you, you guys had both mentioned the the new Last Jedi Star Wars trailer being pretty much beat for beat from the first Force Awakens trailer. Is even though I I quite enjoyed the Last Jedi trailer, and I'm interested to see how that's going to turn out. And it, in all likelihood, I'll think it's a really good film. But um, yeah, it, it even when you breathe new life into an old genre like Force Awakens did, you go right back to what you know then yeah. with the next film. The new life two years later. gets old yeah. very quickly. And if you don't stay on top of it, you're just going to be... Mm, but I Much don't... like this movie yeah. that we're going to talk about. Oh, so, well, well, that's, that's, a, that's a nice little transition, Nicholas. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I try. So... That's coming from the that's coming from the guy who loves this franchise too. Mm. Yep, yeah, and I like this movie. I yeah, just yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> we are talking about the fate of the Furious, the 2017 action adventure crime film, starring wait for it, Vin Diesel, Jason Statham, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, Michelle Rodriguez, Tyrese Gibson, Ludacris, Charlize Theron. Kurt Russell, Nathan, Nathalie Emmanuel, Luke Evans, 
Also starring Christopher Havzva. I don't know how to say his name. So, so exotic. Sure. Helen Mirren also makes an appearance here. And Scott Eastwood shows up uh, playing the role of Brian O'Connor in this film. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Pretty much. Uh, huh? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 he's I, even I, wearing the same clothes. I, I get it. He's, he's the yeah. same archetype, but... Yeah. When you say that, I just kind of recoiled in horror. I'm just like, oh my god! And yet, god. somehow, has less personality than Paul Walker. <laughs> I'm just, I like Paul Walker's character, Brian O'Connor, like in this series because I think it was well suited. But mm-hmm. he was not like <laughs> essential. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he was essential, but he was well, not. Shall we say that archetype is not essential? Yeah, right? it, I mean, I think he was essential because of. How plain he was. He was the everyman. Yeah. yeah. So uh, F. Gary Gray uh, directed this, who he made a big return to film with uh, Straight Outta Compton a couple years ago. Yeah, crazy motherfucker. Which probably got him this job, in yeah. all honesty. Yeah. Because he At had, least the opening scene of Straight Outta Compton. It's a great opening scene. The raid, yeah. Because yeah, he had it. had some, you know, eh, like the Italian job and Law Abiding Citizen were eh. Italian job. Yeah. Isn't Law Abiding Citizen... Hmm? Uh, no, I'm thinking of something else. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are. But you know, he had come a long way in not a great way after doing things like Friday and The Negotiator, which is Friday. Just, yeah, The Negotiator, which is really. Just a, yeah. Oh, that's do you know think that? that? No, I didn't know that. So now that makes me appreciate Straight Outta Compton even more. Do you think that? <laughs> well, because you know, Doctor Dre and and Ice Cube would would trust their story to somebody who they had not worked with in some capacity. I mean, you're saying that like I <laughs> thought that like their story is some kind of Bible or something. No, but to them it's important. And well, I, I, I think agree, that... but so does everybody who put their life rights into a movie deal. <laughs> yeah. uh, They've worked with All I'm before, saying is connective saying. tissue yeah. just yeah. makes me endear myself to that right. movie even right. more. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, F. Gary Gray has made some, some pretty solid films previously. I really do enjoy the negotiation. <laughs> what is going on with Toussaint? Sorry. Okay. I really enjoy The Negotiator, even if uh, not a lot of other people like it. I think it's a very fun film. I don't know what Tucson's doing right now. I'm not doing anything. I think he was scratching an itch. Oh, scratching an itch. But it looked like he <laughs> was a really lonely soul, and he hadn't been touched in a while. Fuck you. So anyways. All right, let's talk about movies. So anyways, uh, The Fate of the Furious uh, is in the... That's what we call a facial. Fast and the Furious franchise. And it uh, surrounds, or surrounds, it is, uh, revolves around, <laughs> god fucking damn it, uh, Dom and Luddy as they are on their honeymoon, and uh, Dom basically gets... Wait, tur- what? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Did they get married in, like, the, what, the, yeah, in between the... I guess. They've been busy, man. Six? Well, anyway. Yeah, so anyways, this, this whole thing is way too long. But anyways, Dom gets taken away by Charlize Theron, and it's up to the rest of the gang to find out what's going on, save the world, and also save their family member at the same time. What would ever motivate him to betray family? Yeah. I mean, at least... Dollars, that's what. Came up with the actual only... Not only solution, but the... <laughs> okay, who wants to go first? The most obvious. Um, Nick loves this series, so why don't you go first? Yeah. Alrighty. Alright. Yeah, I love this series. Yeah. I think this is... 
uh, let, let's just say this. I've been watching recently more and more exploitation films. And I think this is actually a stealth exploitation franchise. It, it doesn't have, like, I would say, an excess of taboo subjects or anything like that. And it certainly, like, especially when it comes to race, it goes the opposite direction. Instead of trying to um, ghettoize and... Um, Tokenize. Yes, tokenized. It, it actually does kind of celebrate diversity. Like, that's the one thing that I will, I totally appreciate about this franchise. More than I appreciate any Marvel casting or anything like that. Like, uh, I love the fact that these movies jump from Cuba to Tokyo Russia. to Russia to wherever. And it doesn't feel like James Bond. Like, James Bond always feels like he goes to these places mm-hmm. and then he meets bit players. Mm-hmm. I will admit, like when Don and Letty are in Cuba in the opening scene on their honeymoon, um, I feel like, and sure, it's a short-sighted and uh, rosy-colored view of modern-day Cuba, but yeah, um, I, I like the... It fits in nicely with the ridiculously overstated theme of family, right. that no matter where they go... People are the same. Mm. They just have different cultures. No matter where they go, whether it's Russia or Tokyo or San Francisco or what have you, they are never so far away from an idyllic backyard, a porch, and a cool case of of, uh, Corona beers. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're Mr. Nobody. Unless you're Mr. Nobody. Or little nobody. Yeah. (laughs) So I gotta say I I, I like this I love this franchise yeah. as a whole. So even its worst outings, which this movie is not, yeah, um, sure. I like or I yeah I would say I like quite a few movies less than this one. I was gonna say I'm pretty sure other than the third one, you're you could deal without any of the first four if you had to. I like two too. You do like? I'm two the fast only person who likes two. Oh, boy. Yep. Well, because you don't understand, Too Fast, Too Furious <laughs> is um, Miami Vice. That slowly turns into the Dukes of Hazards. So, <laughs> as a TV fan, I love it. So, but you, anyway. don't, you don't care for the first one or the no. fourth one, right? No, the fourth one is probably it's the worst one as far as like just it's just a mess of a movie. Yeah, first film I at least have nostalgia points for it. Sure, okay. But no, the two worst movies are the first and the fourth. Okay, uh, and then it would probably be this one or the sixth. I would say is tied. There you go. Um, but overall, I still like it. These are characters I like. These are actors that, at the end of the day, are good when they are with each other. Um, like, you know, I, I've never considered myself a rock fan or a Jason Statham fan, but when you hmm. put them in the same room, yes, there is chemistry. And when I say chemistry, I mean they better start fucking by the next movie. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. Like, I, I honestly thought that might be where this movie was headed. They they were kind of laying it on like this is more than Poe and Finn because here I thought the whole point was that it you know it was only a thinly veiled <laughs> hatred uh, to match their clearly homoerotic love for each other. So I, I mean, I'm excited to see the spinoff. That's Rhodes, all I can say. Rhodes is a is a is a single father. Who? Uh, who's <laughs> the Rhodes? Rock, the Rock's daughter. Yeah, the Rock. Who's yeah. Rhodes? I don't know. Is that's that, that's that that's. Are, are the the girl? Her name is Rhodes. No, I was I was talking about, what are you talking uh, about? Vin, the, no. I'm talking about uh the that's rocks. Not his name. The that's, rocks. That's Don Cheadle's character. What the, from the fuck <laughs> is the rock's name in this movie? Hobbs. 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 
Hobbs is a Hobbs is a God damn it, Rhodey. Take off the war machine costume. <laughs> Was it Luke Hobbs, right? Yeah. 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 Hobbs is a single father. And Luke you know? Cage. Yes. He just... <laughs> also will be showing up in the next film. Mm. Okay. So I'll say this. I'll say while this is clearly one of the weaker entries in this franchise, um, it, it's one of those things where I'm torn between two mindsets, which is this is not a good movie, but I was never not entertained. Yeah. Like, even at its worst, I was at least happy to be watching it because they still haven't gone off some kind of deep end where I'm like, okay, this it's over, you know. So I'm, I'm still enthralled by the fact that I like this series eight films in, and I'm still excited to see nine and ten and whatever else they have coming this way i think individual moments stand up with some of the series best stuff i actually loved the prologue in cuba i thought that uh um dubs uh, race backwards in flames or uh or i should say engulfed in flames uh is one of the most ridiculous moments in the franchise in a great way yeah. yeah but in a great way um and i actually i'll say this there is I was. It's funny because what I ended up not liking about this movie is what I is not what I thought, and the things that I didn't mind in this movie are things that I thought would get old. For example, I can totally understand why I'm probably in the minority, but I still don't think uh, Tyrese is has gotten old yet. Only because I liked in this movie that there was an evolution of the character's reactions to his character because he was mostly relegated to having to talk while other people are talking. So I kind of found that in and of itself funny. Um, And I like the fact that people at least finally start to comment on how childish he is. Like when uh, The Rock... Yelled at him. Why are you always yelling? Like I actually laughed out loud at that because that's a, just a great way to continue what works, but also at least hammer home that the franchise is still self-aware enough that it hasn't lost sight of itself. So uh, overall, I thought it was I thought it was fine. I thought there were some yeah. good moments, and I can understand why anybody would not like it. But I don't know what this movie would do to like earn anybody's scorn. So that's what I think right now. Yeah. Is Tyrese just a modern day Martin Lawrence? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. But Tyrese doesn't have a blue streak in his <laughs> cinematography. Uh, what, what do you call it? Filmography. There we go. <laughs> um, this is pretty much right on board with uh, the sixth Fast and the Furious film for me, where I just thought it was very much watchable, but at the same time, I just could not get really into this. And I think maybe this is suffering a little bit of, uh, not that it's as good of a film as this, but uh, what the first Mockingjay Hunger Game films did when I saw it for the first time. I feel like they can't go too far. Well, and it's coming off of their best entry, so it's it's really got nowhere to go because yeah. it's, it's a Fast and the Furious film, like that was a Hunger Games film, which has hit its high point and there's nowhere to go upwards. So either you have to stay flat or go down. And what are you going to do with that? Um, I will say that this film is trying to do too many things and doesn't really succeed overly at any of them. Uh, I feel like it, and this is uh, when it, it's a franchise that has turned into its eighth entry that is obsessed with trying to force in all the characters that it can. 
Um, some of the cameos work, and some of the characters in the film just don't. Like, the Scott Eastwood character, I don't need that, didn't need that. I guess he plays a part in it, but whatever. Kurt Russell's character, who I'm still convinced is just going to end up being the, the evil genius in the final film, whatever. Had to get uh, Yeah, so with the <laughs> filmmakers, probably, I'm guessing. Uh, but, the, but the whole story was very really just crap to be totally honest with you like the idea of dom turning against his family and then well he can't really turn against his family which yeah, yeah like it feels old-timey in that sense it it feels like it's telling the audience one thing but the audience is never actually believing it and it's, i will say yeah. i was at least pleasantly happy with the fact that the it doesn't waste too much time withholding the reason. I thought that was going to be I like mean, the trailer, a, a final tri- real the, reveal. The first trailer tried to go all in on it. Yeah, but that's and just it was, to market it. I got it, yeah. but it's at the same time it was like, okay, this is what this one's going to be, and, he, and then he's going to come back. He's going to be the Green Ranger, going to return to the Power Rangers. This is all going to be fine. But it, and I'm, I'm with you that it's not. But it never was, and that's the yeah. that's the thing. And like, I, at this point, like, there's no reason to believe that in the next film, Charlize Theron will not be on the family side of the, the right. The I mean, power of family. Man. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got to be right because you like. Every, Come on, Cipher. Here's a cold one. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Every single film has taken snidely whiplash and turned them into a, a good person. Can in I the just say film. I actually <laughs> like that. In the franchise, like yeah. that for me is what I call the uh, the Whedon family because yeah. um, his shows, uh, Buffy and Angel, the Scooby Gangs, right? They were kind of one of the prototypical example of like so like Spike, one of the most famous characters I think on TV, but mm-hmm. in general in the Whedon verse, uh, was introduced as the big bad vampire, and by the end of that show, he's one of the best friends of the entire group. So yeah. I actually like this kind of. Um, uh, s- weird bit of soap opera social reform <laughs> that all the uh, villains go through and the fact that this is a soap opera at its heart and Chris Morgan I do think has I wouldn't say tricks up his sleeve because they're not clever but more information up his sleeve because he's already hinting at the fact that Deckard probably didn't kill uh, Han and a yeah. few other things yeah so but saying that, if you if you actually go all the way back to the first film, if you really think about it, you know yes. Vin Diesel is the villain in the first right. film. And yes, so. <laughs> it was. The, it was uh, that's the other thing. When people keep saying like, "Why are people so? Why are they all so accepting of um, Shaw?" Right. That, uh, well, Deckard. both of them, Deckard and Ethan, are now right. both. <laughs> why are Why are they so accepting of of their help when they killed Han? I'm like. The entire franchise started because a cop decided that a criminal was worth his entire career. Like, that's the whole fucking thing. So. That's so romantic. So, well, I'm just saying, well, like, you yeah. can't get mad at the no, fact I mean, that that's how yeah. the foundation was laid it's out. It's fine. It just, it's just, it's like we've talked about ad nauseum with repeated recycled franchises if you do the same exact trick every time it's going to get old and it feels like it has a little bit here it's yeah. and even though i really did uh and i spoke on this right after to you guys right after this you know luke evans's career has gone in a much l- larger uh you know place than when he was uh, playing that character five years ago in fast 
five. five? Yeah. No, he was six. Was he six? Yeah. Okay. Because uh, The Rock was technically the villain. Villain in five. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, at least he was one of the villains. Yeah. I, think I remember watching that. Fast Five is great. If you, mm-hmm. if, you haven't, if you haven't watched I it lately. I think I do remember. Is that the one where they drag the... the uh, yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it's a really good film. I think I skipped six. That's probably fine. Yeah. Um, it it's just it's it just seems like it's the same exact thing over and over. And even the the small cutesy things like Jason Statham with the baby, which was fine. Uh, it was just, a hard boiled homage. Yeah, John Woo's film. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it just it just could not completely save this film that felt stale to me. And that's not even the baby. Well, but that's the thing, but though. the baby! That's the thing about this series. You could have a fucking submarine coming flying out of of ice and just... It feels cha- tame. ...chasing after Lamborghinis driving on ice with the rock hanging his arm out the side of the car, and it feels like, meh, I've seen this before. It, it, it's, that's nuts. Yeah. It's, it's it, crazy that it's gotten there's, to such this a, point. there's such a series that yeah. is like that. It's like, oh, you really, you know, it's, what, what is it going to take? Right. And that's the thing. Like, it's gotten, now that they're at the eighth film, like, if they do end up in space at some point, I'll be like, eh. They better. <laughs> Seriously. Right. Honestly, but, at this point, why the fuck not? Yeah. Why the fuck not? But that's 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 the unfortunate part of where this has gotten is it's yeah it seems like it's just trying to push the envelope and at some point you're pushing it just to push it and it doesn't really have the same effect. So it was in a watchable film, but uh, certainly one of the one of the worst entries in the series, in my opinion. So moving on to the shot now, Cipher. You can sit there in that corner with your shitty looking dreadlocks, typing on your keyboard. You can knock back a cold one with the boys. I know. Uh, we, familia. We all, familia. We all know you enjoyed watching the film because you have an obsession with Charlize Theron. Actually, so. no, I don't. I have an obsession <laughs> with uh, Imperator <laughs> Furiosa. Anyway. Okay. Okay. All right. So No. <laughs> hold on. I remember watching Prometheus with you. I was going to say. <laughs> forgot on. about that. Yeah. And somebody would not shut up about yeah. Bay. Yeah. Bay. Now she now she gets Bay. dreadlocks and she's fucking disgusting. That's I, great. I just, yeah. Your betrayal yeah. to your race. <laughs> Get out of my face. Nice rhyming. Get out of my face. Uh, anyway, uh, so talking about um, the fate of the Furious. First off, um, with this being the eighth entry in the Fast and Furious uh, series, I cannot believe that the teaser trailer, I mean the teaser poster for this, was not literally a fucking circus. Like a, a circuit eight, like a like a racetrack. Like it's so fucking easy. Just fucking do it. Whatever. Anyway, um, did somebody already do that? Was it was it the second death race film that had that? Who gives a fuck about? I mean, I death guess race? I guess. I... Whoa, <laughs> the new death race. <laughs> All right, the continue. original is amazing. I know, but continue yeah, to the so. new death race. Anyway, um. Yeah, I have not seen a Fast and the Furious film since really? we last reviewed oh. Oh, okay. um, Furious the 7. Furious 7, which was in 2000. It was two years ago. Yeah, it was two years ago. Yeah. Um, but still, even in that intervening time, I've, I've sort of grown to... I mean, if you look back at that old episode, I'm kind of bewildered by the whole experience, but I'm still like appreciative of it. But, well, there was Race Wars. But, oh, God, I remember that. Mm. Anyway, um... So over time, I've sort of, I've, 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 <laughs> I, I, I've sort of like grown this uh, 
this sort of uh, latent appreciation for Fast and the Furious as sort of this this franchise that has achieved a lowbrow like level of high art to its uh, to, to its absurdity. Like it, it I, I have I haven't seen like the initial entries in it. I think the earliest one I've actually like seen is like Fast Five. You've never seen the first one at least? No, I haven't. Not, not that it's because no. I enjoy it, but that's great. But no. I'm surprised you've never even watched the first I one at some up. point. Every time I think of the Vin Diesel saying the Buster drove me home. Okay, <laughs> what are you doing with this Buster? So, did uh did the guy from um the guy from the third film Tokyo Drift show up in Furious Seven? Which guy? The main character. Oh, uh, Luke, uh, Luke Black, Lucas Black. Yes. No. He showed. Wait, he show Furious up? Seven. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's oh, what I, that's I, what I was, I was asking about this movie. Because I no I Furious thought, Seven. Yes, he shows I, up in the flashback. Well, not a flashback. Yeah. It's, the timeline is distorted. Yeah. So Vin Diesel <laughs> shows up to him to collect Han's things. Yes. yes. Okay. Sorry, Tucson. Go ahead. All right, cool. So, basically, back to what I, I, was, I was talking about. I'm kind of impressed with this series of how it could evolve from a point of of of, of a cop and a a ne'er do well street racer. It's a Point Break remake, which then like sort of goes through like this exponential curve until like these this cast of of main characters are pretty much vigilante super spy drivers for hire which is just fucking absurd to me that's just absolutely awesome who have also by the way uh been on the world's most wanted list and off of it uh i think four different occasions yeah it's it's they just they just leapfrog back and forth back and forth onto this thing i was gonna Um, say in in the fourth film i'm pretty sure they show them ahead of osama bin laden so yeah (laughs) you gotta I mean, you gotta save some room for Kim Jong Un. I mean, what does he have to do? Is, I mean, I I don't know if North Korea has roads like that. I don't even know if they really have cars Where like that. We're so going. We don't to, need roads. How is he supposed to like like compete? I don't know. Roads? You mean uh, <laughs> Luke Hobbs? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Fucking um, a fucking English language. Yeah. Um, this film is. I thought this film was okay. I didn't like it as much as. Um, Fast and Furious 7. I think it, it's one of those that it fills me with a doubt of my cognitive ability for object permeance, of which I have seen this film twice now. And I remember laughing at the same points, enjoying the same points, finding the same like points of this film memorable. And yet when I when I walk out of the theater into the cold light of day, it instantly begins to decay and fade from my memory. It's just... Well, depression will do that. Well, it's it's just fucking incredible how I I I'm having trouble like remembering some of my favorite parts of this film that I really did honestly enjoy, and it just doesn't really stick with me at all. Like the one the one point that I actually did enjoy, um, is 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 just goes out to to Vin Diesel when he he you learn why he's actually helping out Cipher Charlize Theron's character, and he. It's when he decides to not shoot Letty after he gets the nuclear football. He gets back on the plane, and there's like a like a confrontation, a standoff of like he has to lose something now. And Charlize Theron is like, "This is your fault." And Vin Diesel is like, "My fault!" Like this shrill, um, comic, 
this comic exclamation that he you're not it you're not all. used to to hearing that from him because he's so monotone and so low and gravelly and he's training so hard to to, to express himself my fault he's like, like a fucking cartoon character a couple of installments ago that scene would have went a completely different way yeah. where Charlie Theron would be like holding a gun to his ex-girlfriend's head and he do it and well no and then he'd be like you know, I used to tell myself I drove my life one mile at a... And then we just hear a gunshot. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have preferred that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but overall, I just... I think it's okay. I think it's an okay movie. Um, I don't... I, I have not seen many other reactions other than that. I yeah. don't... I have not seen a lot of people who despise this film... Uh, like some people really didn't care for the fourth one or the sixth one even. Uh, I feel like I like this more than the sixth one. Me too. For the sole reason that I do think it fits better. Like it feels more purposeful. Like it's not even that it's better, but at least it has more clever callbacks and uh, uh, ways to connect to the whole. It also doesn't have Gina Carano's terrible acting, so there's that. Well. Trying to think, isn't the sixth one where they have the awesome subway fight? Yeah, that's, but it's uh, worth it. The, uh, well, are you talking about Gina Carano? Or uh, Ronda I was gonna, Rousey? I was gonna, well, Gina Carano is okay. Okay, I was gonna say, Ronda but Ronda Rousey, Rousey was yeah. like a disaster right. in the seventh, the seventh film. film. What? I was gonna say, Gina Carano what, was what, not. What like, about what? I forgot. Yeah, they the tried to give her an accent yeah. too. I was gonna Ugh. say, I feel like you're <laughs> switching those two up. No, I'm, 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 I'm not because I know Gina Carano has had other starring roles she has like an in Haywire. Who? Ronda Rousey did. No, I'm saying, but you said Gina Carano. No, I, 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 if I did, I misspoke. Oh, okay. I was talking about Ronda Rousey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. But no, Gina Carano was. I mean, she was okay, but yeah, it's well, like I'm we could have whatever. Yeah. but I liked her and Michelle Rodriguez's fight more than I liked. Oh well, yeah, Runner Rousey. I mean, and... that's where it goes without saying. Yeah. On the eighteen mile runway, that was great. <laughs> but this film, I haven't seen that many people who love or hate this. Like, it's yeah. just kind of there. I think we're all drunk on Fast and the Furious, and the alcohol is slowly losing its effect, so yeah. to speak. And um, yeah, I, I'm happy that there's a new one. And I'm happy there's another one. So it in no way deters me from loving this franchise. But there's just really nothing to say. Yeah. Um, one thing I will mention is that even though there obviously is quite a bit of it, it seemed as though the hand-to-hand combat dropped off in this film from the previous entries. Yeah, the only time that ever showed up was maybe my favorite sequence in the whole movie, which was the jail breakout. Yeah, that was pretty good. I thought the editing, the music, like everything about it was like, actually I was like, and that's when I thought like, oh man, they may have recaptured, like, because that was pretty early on in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but no. I mean, if you have a hand-to-hand, if you don't have a hand-to-hand combat scene in Jason Statham's scene, he's very much useless. I mean, this so. is a franchise in which dead Paul Walker has one of my favorite, like, fight scenes in any modern action well, which is the one with Tony Jaa? I was going to say at the end of oh, in the, not the uh, one in the bus, yeah, but the no, one the, you know. The, the but that's one clearly the, yeah. a marriage of where he was no longer. I don't think with them and whatnot. Yeah, uh, but I'm just saying, like this franchise can do it, so I don't know why it just didn't. Well, it it, it seemed as though they wanted to go away from that into more car based elements, and even <laughs> something that I quite enjoyed, which was the uh, automatic driving cars coming flying out of the building, landing on things. It's still, and maybe that's the problem of this series, like, we've seen 
the car driving from building to building to building and, and getting the job done. Yeah. So now even even self-driving cars, although the one scene when they turn at the exact same time on the street was awesome. But like driving out of the side of the building to just it just felt like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> especially, <clears throat> excuse me, mm-hmm. especially when you can totally see that, like, when they fall out of the building, they're real, and then the minute they're on the ground, it's just it's a CGI swarm yeah. of cars. Like, uh. I, I mean, the film is, the franchise has always used CGI, but I've always been more, um, shall we say, fooled by its CGI in the past. But this uh, whole entry just glared with, like, I don't know if it was, like, laziness, like, we got them now, so now we don't have to, like, give it our all. But um, there was a lot of times where I'm like, does that car need to be CGI? Can't we put a person in that car? And, yeah, anyway. Um, You got also a a stark difference from the the ending of the seventh film, which was, I mean, for me, just an absolute fantastic climactic scene where you had all the different people sort of teaming up against their... Their opposite rival, you had uh, The Rock facing off against Juman Hansu. You had the big showdown between Jason Statham and Vin Diesel. Um, and it, it it just seemed so much more grounded, where here, everything had to have a car involved in it somehow. And it really felt like it just took away from the enjoyment of yeah. the action scenes. My biggest complaint, I'll say this, about the movie, is that... I think we are three installments past the fifth one, and mm-hmm. we are now getting to the point where we are learning the wrong lessons from the franchise. And one of those lessons that I think was so good about f- the fifth one is, is family. Is well, too sad. Is have you seen the fifth one? Yeah, you haven't. Yeah, I have. Yeah, with the with the have. safe. Right. Yeah, but is. Like in the fifth one, one of the novelties and what kind of reinvigorated that franchise was that they. Oh well, well, it was the Rock saying, "Stay the fuck out of my way." Well, that was that. (laughs) But um, was the way they capitalized on the franchise's history. It was the first real time that the franchise had looked back and truly cherry picked from a lot of different eras. What's his name showed up in that fifth film? Didn't he? Uh, the the guy who's like Vin Diesel's right hand man, Vince, is that his name? Yeah, because they meet up with him yeah. at, at the country. I forget yeah. whatever country they're in, but yep, yeah. even that, like mm-hmm. that movie. And I think the more we get past that, the more we think we need to include everybody in these yeah. movies. And so now the the novelty is worn off, and we need to actually start letting people go, not because we don't we shouldn't see them again, but we need to go back to where like we only bring people in on the family team when necessary. When they have a purpose. So like yeah. and I and I honestly think it should go by popularity. So like the next movie should really only be probably Vim, The Rock and Jason and maybe we can let Ramsey and uh, Letty and well okay now I'm just saying all the women but well, to be fair this franchise has never been kind to women like in this movie yeah. when they fridge uh, a woman <laughs> unfortunately but whatever um but yeah yeah I mean and and you know it's it's actually quite interesting because I mean part of it has to do with the fact that she's become a, a superhero in, in a franchise but you see Gal Gadot, who got thrown into a, an airplane engine uh, at the end of the sixth film, and 
really, uh, in terms of the mainstays, she would be the biggest name out of everybody who's yeah. in this. Eh, the Rock. No, in terms of the females. Wait, Sorry. Oh, female. Sorry yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah, so, for sure. And, for sure. Uh, you know, I don't really see how she's going to be coming back <laughs> at any point. So, right. yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I, if if you want to go to final ratings, I'd be, yeah. I'd be on board for it because there's not too much to say about this film, no. even though, you know, there were small good things here and there. And that's ultimately what I'll say of my rating is I give this a three out of five because I thought this was an enjoyable film to sit and watch. And that's all it is, though. Like, if you could not sit down and watch this three or four times in a month span and enjoy it every single time. Like, it would get tedious at some point. Don't challenge me. Well, okay. But at the same time, the, this doesn't bring the same type of effects as the earlier film did. I'm not even talking about physical effects. I'm just saying, like, the ending of the of the seventh film, even without the Paul Walker stuff, just the way it ended was so much better put together and so much more meaningful than this film. Uh, and it, it feels like they're going in the wrong direction now. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing because again, you're at the eighth entry. Like there's not really much more that can be done at this point. And especially when you have Vin Diesel, who's uh, was more well known here recently for that amazing interview where he looked like Pitbull with his glasses on. He's has no one not seen this this beautiful woman. If, I don't. I mean, uh, I, seriously. And it went on for like what, like for seven listeners minutes. Mentioning <laughs> that, yeah. For we have... listeners who don't know, <laughs> yeah, what we're talking about. There was a very uncomfortable interview that you can. <laughs> look up on YouTube. Multiple, with, actually. Well, probably, mo- yeah, but there was one in one particular. One specific one, yeah. Uh, with okay. him... Well, okay, uh, we are mentioning... Yes, yes continue. <laughs> one specific one in which Vin Diesel is interviewed by a Brazilian? Yeah. Okay, a Brazilian woman uh, in, in her country, and he cannot focus on the interview because, according to him, and, and I'm not disputing him, but he will not stop professing his, uh, shall we say, bodily lust for the female interviewer. His guttural lust. It is like it is one of the most profoundly uncomfortable press interviews I've ever seen because she, it, it completely should not have... dis- completely disregarded. Oh her, yeah, or any any sort of nobody else is uh, stepping in to shall we say help her because she's made to be profoundly uncomfortable he's, for good reason. He is Frank T J Mackey in that interview. Like no, if... Frank T J Mackey <laughs> is more sympath- <laughs> sympathetic because at least there's a three X structure there. We this is Frank T J Mackey if he never got off the stage for his actual interview. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> respect the, uh, oh, tame the, uh, oh. Go ahead, Tucson. Um, God. building off of that. Tucson, uh, you are so beautiful. Oh, thank you. It's like, I mean. Is no one seeing this? How, Alex, how do you even, like, host a show sitting across from that? Oh. Is that it? I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. I love the way the light just kind of bounces off. Oh, you sound like my girlfriend. Um, anyway, um, so building off of that, uh, this was not an isolated incident. He did this again with this movie in particular um, because if you paid attention to the the first trailer for The Fate of the Furious, you might have noticed, and they snuck it in at the end, 
this this one scene where Charlize Theron's character Cipher moves in to kiss. That's in the movie. To kiss. I know. I'm being facetious right now. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. I got confused. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I do that sometimes. I'm just, sorry. I'm just bewildered because you're so beautiful. Oh, thanks, man. Okay. Oh. Anyway, Is nobody seeing this. <laughs> it's just... Anyway, um, Cipher kisses Dom. Yes. And. Vin Diesel will not shut the fuck up about it. He literally cannot shut the fuck up about it because he'll talk to be about fair, how you wouldn't either. How f Gary Gray, especially if she shaved her head, how, then he'd really be on how it. f <laughs> Gary Gray had to shoot it multiple times, and he's like, "Yeah, I, I didn't mind that at all." It's like she's a great kisser, and when he was when he was asked about how. Um, how he thought that Charlize Theron felt about the kiss. He was like, "Do Why I know she asked about that? Do I god, know she I enjoyed it? Oh my god, yeah! A kiss cannot lie. Lips don't lie. She owned it." And Charlize Theron then went on uh, Ellen DeGeneres, and she was like, "I have no idea what the fuck this guy is talking about. I literally, I, I kissed him, and it was like kissing a dead fish. Like mm. I don't know. I don't. What's, I, the, what's the? It's 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 a. You know, it's a. That's her." job is to fulfill the scene is to kiss him this is happens in every film yeah this is not i mean we're gonna have a marlon brando revelation about vin diesel later on maybe after his death like is is it gonna be is there going to be a a rape allegation against him at some point like he keeps on taking selfies of himself like without a shirt on and it's really (laughs) gross he's got like this weird it's not an innie it's not an audi but it's like it, talking I'm talking about his belly button. It's fucking weird, dog. He's got like that. He's got like that. Str- oh. He's got that stretch line down his belly. That, How did we get to boy, f- that final rating? That that, that 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 like I know like pregnant ladies have like <laughs> when when they're having like a baby, and I don't know how he got that. Like a mastectomy? It, or yeah, it's like something like that. It looks weird. Like I don't know. Pregnant ladies have. <laughs> Yeah, they got like this dark line that runs down the like the length of their belly. Like I don't know. It happens. You mean like a C section? <laughs> no, yeah. not like a C section. I'm talking about a natural Get line that's, my sort body, of, like, that's that sort of like <laughs> ingrains itself like down the length of their belly. And it's, so, anyways, it, I yeah, it's just weird. Film a three out of five. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to talk about? No, I was, I'm just gonna say I, I don't have much. I just I don't have much more. To, to really add, this was okay. It yeah. was brought really nothing new to the table other than a few cool little things here and there. Um, and I'll end up going to see the ninth one because they've got my money. So there that is. All right, Tucson, I mean, go, it's a, go it's ahead. The sunk loss fallacy. I mean, I, I've already sunk this much money into the series, and I've only fucking seen like three of these films. I can't imagine somebody who's seen all of them? I've seen all of them. Like, yeah, like you're gonna fucking go to the next one. Oh, at this point too. What, they, what, what when, can they do to to really just they they they've had it, it's it, we talked about Woody Allen earlier. He's had enough winners where you'll pretty much give anything I to mean, try. Here's the thing: <laughs> they'd have to put Woody Allen in a film and then have him like don't put it past them. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I don't know what's wrong with the exhaust. <laughs> Edward Norton playing Sammy yeah. Bagel Jr. Yeah. in the that's, next that's one. That's going to be the, the next to- And it would, no one would bat an eye to <laughs> if Sammy Bagel Jr. showed up in Fast and Everybody keeps talking about family, but no one's taking a blood test. I don't get it. It's just, he's the interviewer in Vin Diesel. Is no one seeing us? This, Vin, just... Vin we, focus on me. Focus. Come on, Vin. <laughs> anyway. Just, uh, just, uh, 
continue. I I absolutely love this episode. Uh, just to step away from just leading up to my 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 rating, I love this episode because I feel like we have cumulatively we have spent more time talking about our weeks in review, not only in length but in depth, more than that of the fate of the furious, and that is not a a. a, a, a well, people say girth is more important than life. It, it's it's not a, a a knock against us. It's more of a knock against the film because there's really nothing yeah. left to really say about it. I was going to say, it, if it was worse, yeah. we'd have more to say. Exactly, yeah. but it's just it, – it, it rides the line all the way to – Ride or die. All the way – yeah, ride or die, and it ends up dying towards the end. It's just oh. like it just limps over the, the finish line. It's okay. Um, uh, at this point, yeah, they, these motherfuckers need to go to space. Um I give it a two and a half out of five. Yeah. Yeah. These motherfuckers need to go to space. Just go to space, dude. I mean, is is that is is that too expected at this point? I don't care. I need. I don't it. give a shit. Yeah. I don't give like a shit I if it's expected. It. Just do it. Uh, all right. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I here's the thing. I was going to say this earlier. I view the Fast and the Furious franchise like a television series. Like, I love this series. It doesn't mean I'm going to love every episode. And certainly some weeks it feels like it's repeating itself. But I'm watching this for a reason, which is that I'm all in. And ultimately, that's what I can say about this, which is that it's not a good installment. But if you like Fast and the Furious, I don't see why you would not like You've this. already decided. Yeah. So I give it three out of five. And, um, yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty much it. That's yeah. about it. Yeah. All right. Right on. So, uh, if you have any additional thoughts on uh, the fate of the Furious, which if you if you do, it would be great because we you know we'd like to hear a, a different opinion on it for sure. If you if some we like you well, and if, if we like you, and if something jumped out to you that uh, just didn't appear to any of us, uh, we'd love to hear it from you at uh, our email address, which is filmtankshow at gmail.com. And also you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram as well at Film Tank Show. So a, uh, a film that popped up on Netflix here just uh, a few weeks ago uh, and has gotten really mixed to negative reviews, but uh, something that has a pretty interesting premise and also involves, oh man, 80-year-old Robert Redford <laughs> uh, is uh, this film called The Discovery, which centers around a love story set one year after the existence of the afterlife is scientifically verified. And it, it, the, the premise of it can't help but sound interesting. Like, it's it's it sounds like something like The Lobster, uh, not in that exact same you know, method of, of filmmaking, but at the same time, it's this interesting bizarre world that it feels like I, I haven't watched the film yet, but you can't look away from it. Like it's just something that's just there. So um, this film, as I mentioned, stars Robert Redford uh, and also involves Rudy Mara and Jason Siegel, who makes a, an appearance in a, in a dramatic role. So, so we'll see what happens with that. Uh, it, it's directed uh, by Charlie McDowell, who previously a couple years ago directed oh. the film, the one I love, uh, with really? uh, with Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss, uh, which I think Nick, you've seen that, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I like that movie. Yeah. So now I'm actually more interested in watching the Discovery. Yeah. Cool. So we'll see uh, what that is, and we'll talk about it coming up on our next episode. Uh, 
as always, you can find all of our episodes on filmtankshow.com, or you can also find them as well on iTunes or Stitcher at Film Tank Show. So, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, myself, Alex Diekman, all of us, thank you, the listener, uh, for listening here on Film Tank, and we'll catch up with you again next time. From Chrome. <laughs>